This is Subversive, a podcast hosted by me, Alex Kashuta, to highlight hidden voices, uncommon perspectives, and our era's true intellectual elite, the anonymous poster. If you'd like to support the show, you can do so on Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. Thank you and enjoy. Today, I am joined by Chris Buskirk. Um, Chris is the founder, the editor, and publisher at American Greatness. Um, he's an entrepreneur. He's been published in pretty much any outlet you can imagine, including in the New York Times. Uh, and he is the author of the upcoming or maybe just just released uh, America and the Art of the Possible, Restoring National Vitality in the Age of Decay. Welcome, Chris. I, well, thanks for having me. It's uh, it's you are the uh, the first media hit I am doing promoting the book. So, I, and I couldn't think of a better place to do it. Oh, thank you so much. That's that's an honor. And I also um, I, I just saw an interview of yours, or maybe a month ago, and I was like, why isn't he talking about the book? <laughs> so, I, yeah, that's that's really good to hear. Um, yeah, I mean, I was your podcast was probably one of the maybe the second or third podcast I ever did, like anyone inviting me to to speak about whatever I random that. stuff I, I remember. Oh, we had a good time. And um, yeah, no, we had a good time doing that. And I was thinking about it when we were, when I was, I, you know, this morning, I was just sort of getting ready. I was thinking how we were going to do this. I was thinking, gosh, that's like probably about two years ago now. And now you've gone on to uh, to great heights. Yeah, I mean, I like to I like to believe that. I mean, it's still pretty niche right wing <laughs> podcast, but still, you know, for for niche right wing podcast, this is one of the greats. So, uh, <laughs> I I wanted to uh, ask you because you are you are in Arizona and you you are a man of Arizona. You've been involved in politics in Arizona, and you've been involved in politics um, to the benefit of someone who's been on the podcast, Blake Masters. Um, I just wanted to to see. Do you have any lessons from that campaign? I mean. I've, I'm sure a lot of people from uh, from my audience uh, know what happened there. I mean, he was, you know, he's kind of a, a, a rising star, you know, loosely affiliated with the online right, a bit more kind of a dissident energy. Um, if anyone's watched the episode with him here, you can see why. Um, a lot of clips from that episode have been used in kind of, um, I don't know, negative advertising against him by uh, by opponents. You know, it's, it's, it's an interesting thing. And the fact that they, he's a candidate that was, you know, our guy. Um, I wonder what what you've you've um, what you've learned after that. You know, because he in, in the end he lost, uh, but you know he he was you know he went down fighting. That's for sure. Yeah, I mean, look, Blake. Um, I don't know if you said the name Blake Masters. He ran for Senate here in in Arizona. Um, Blake. Well, first of all, just let me just stipulate: Blake is a good friend, and he would have been a massive, massive upgrade to the Senate. Um, and to American political and public life in general, I think that he's, um, there's basically two people, um, that, uh, that kind of epitomize what I always think of when pe- people always say like, why don't really smart, successful, energetic people run for office? Gosh, it's really a shame. We want to get, <laughs> we want to attract those people to run for office. And uh, we had two of them running for high office, J.D. Vance, who of course won in Ohio and is now a Senator and Blake here in, in Arizona who ran, um, what is, you know, in a play, in a, in a environment that's harder than Ohio, Ohio's a state that, uh, that Trump won by eight points or eight and a half points. Um, Trump, uh, narrowly lost Arizona. And so it was just a very different, um, dynamic, especially in the general election. You know, when you think about, um, 
lessons from that election. Uh, we would have to do the 37-part Alex and Chris podcast to talk about all of the uh, lessons learned. Um, one of the things, though, that I think is a is a takeaway there is that somebody like Blake, who started out literally with zero name ID in Arizona, can um, win a primary uh, for high office, and he can then do well in the general election. Like I lose, like losing is losing, right? I don't want to be sort of Pollyannish about that and pretend like it's something else. Um, it's painful. It's bad for the country. It's bad for the state that Blake isn't in the Senate. But um, you take somebody like Blake, who really is, um, who is unique, uniquely good. Um, and and I guess one of the things that I learned was the positive is he could win. Um, he won the primary by 12 um, and then ran a really good race in the general election and was outspent like seven to one. Okay. Um, and that's something that people don't, I think, who, who maybe don't, aren't really in the weeds on this stuff, don't really appreciate is like, you know, Mark Kelly, who's the senator here, his, you know, there was the, his campaign, they had a pot of money, and then there were the outside PACs that were supporting him. They were spent something on the order of like $150 million. Um, the campaign alone was about half that $75 million. Um, that is a multiple of all the money that was spent on behalf of Blake, just what the campaign had. Okay. And then there were all the other tens of millions of dollars on the, on the outside and the money really, really matters. Um, but I guess one of the, one of, one of the other things that, uh, that I sort of took away from this is that you have somebody, um, like Blake. And one of the things that we saw that was super interesting, uh, we did a, we did a final poll. It was like, I don't know, maybe 10 days before the election or something. And we had, um, this, if you just knew the statistic, you think we were describing the Democrat and the, the, the numbers are, um, Blake was winning Hispanics by nine. He was winning, um, under 45 by two and he was losing 65 plus by 10. Okay. Now that sounds like the Democrat candidate. Right. And I, and, uh, of course, you know, ultimately like it was really the, the older people, especially older swing voters who kind of did Blake in. Um, but what, you know, my hopeful read on that is that somebody like Blake who is smart and energetic and charismatic actually is very attractive to groups of people that Republicans have traditionally struggled with young people and Hispanics, which are a, a larger, larger group of the, of the electorate. And I don't know. So, I mean, that's, that's just a couple of things to, to take away from the election, but there's, there's a bunch to unpack there that we can learn from. And there's some stuff where, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't great, but there's a lot of stuff there that, where there's reason for like legitimate hope. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's such an interesting candidate. I mean, he, he's, he's independently successful. He's, you know, entrepreneur. He's co-written a book with Peter Thiel. Like he's a, you know, he has a profile in certain groups. I don't think like the, the, you know, casual on the street Arizona voter would have heard of his name before this for sure. Uh, but he's an established person. I mean, I, I heard, I knew of Blake Masters before he was in politics because I read the book and I was really into you know, Thiel and the Thielverse. But um, he is, he really is, he really does talk the talk and walk the walk because I, I met him in Miami and, you know, just the, the way he expresses himself, uh, you know, off the cuff and, you know, he can hold a speech to a room. I'm sure, you know, this stuff is slightly rehearsed. It's not the first time he spoke, but uh, he's got that, um, I know, extreme charisma. And, yeah. you know, I, I can I can imagine that that 
uh, was almost enough to beat the what you said seven to one uh, advantage that that Mark Kelly yeah, had. I mean, Justin, just insane. Like the money really, really matters. There's a a friend of mine in Arizona, retired sort of guy, been quite successful, spending his retirement as an activist. And he told me all through the the late summer and early fall, I was telling him, "Gosh, you know, we're just getting." beat up uh, on the money on, on, you know, on, te- on, the, on Blake's side, you know, with all the, you know, you add up the campaign and all the groups and stuff. He's like, I don't think it matters. He's like, Blake is just so fantastic. Like, who wouldn't see that? I'm like, well, you'd be surprised. You know, a lot of people, they just don't know. Or, you know, you, it, it's amazing. You know, you spend 30 or $40 million running TV ads, telling somebody that they want to, telling people who don't pay attention to politics that Blake wants to, you know, like push grandma off a cliff or whatever. And some percentage of those people don't know any better and they believe it. Do you think his, his kind of, you know, loose association with more, you know, things that are considered more far right or, you know, dissident right stuff and, you know, the, the Kaczynski thing and all this hurt him in a significant way. Do you think that's. The, the, like the, 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 you know, you're, 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 uh, audience will know this. Well, I mean, he, you asked him the the famous question, like, um, what, who, what's an interesting subversive thinker? He says, uh, Ted, Ted Kaczynski, which it's a totally legitimate answer. He was a really interesting writer. And to say somebody's an interesting writer isn't to endorse, um, you know, sending people mail bombs. Um, but he is an interesting writer. And, you know, they ran a bunch of ads um, on TV against Blake, and, and they would sort of take that clip and there'd be like a you know two seconds and they'd be like ted kaczynski's the unabomber and like it's the implication like somehow blake was endorsing that which was of course absurd i don't did that hurt i don't know maybe at the margin sure um what what but it was it was uh it was a an out of context clip that hurt worse with blake where he was at a, a public forum and they were asking him about entitlements and social security and um and he he said, he, you know, in the course of his answer, he says, well, you know, look, Social Security is something everybody depends on. It's got to be there for everybody who wants it and needs it. We got to make sure it's strong and is there forever and like gives you like every caveat you, that you're you're supposed to give. He says, but, you know, like it's also like it pays out more than it takes in and that's un- untenable. And, you know, maybe there, we should think about ways where part of it could be privatized. They, I mean, like lift out like a clause of, out of a sentence, like literally like maybe one second, uh, one second, um, and then just wrap that into like a 30 second TV ad and say like Blake wants to kill grandma. And they spent literally tens of million dollars running that ad. Did that hurt? Yeah, it did. I mean, it was, I mean, this is one of those things that, you know, you talk about lessons learned in general about like why people don't want to do this who are accomplished. Like you can't be, it's just blatantly dishonest because they misrepresented what he said. And I know people say, well, that's politics. And I agree, but it does also explain the question is like, why do so many politicians seem so bland? Like, why do they give these stupid answers? Now the answer is a lot of them are not very smart and don't have anything else to say, but there's also a part, there's also some of them who are smart and they're like, you know, I've got to be super careful with what I say, because if I give a, uh, like even a very smart 10 second answer and there is like six words in the middle that somebody can clip out and put into a TV ad, they will bash my brains in with it. And so it's just, you you just have to be really cognizant of that when you're doing like practical electoral, um, electoral politics. And, you know, so I don't know, th- th- those are, it, it's more the really big things. Like some of the stuff where, um, where Blake was maybe a little more edgy, where he's talking about like things that he thinks are interesting. 
I actually think that that was, you know, at worst, it was maybe net neutral for them. Like for some people, they, that was like the attraction, like with younger people, maybe, whereas maybe it turned off some older voters. And how does that net out? You know, maybe maybe it's a wash. Yeah. I mean, there's definitely energy in the space. I mean, Trump tapped into a incredible amount of energy in 2016 and he was pretty much a loose cannon. I mean, he's definitely got some some memorable uh, clips, you know, hours of footage of him saying insane sounding things. Uh, but that in the end didn't there's really... Only there's only one Donald Trump. And that's that was like True. the people who... Um, you saw a lot of like penny ante, like dime store, like Donald Trump wannabes. Right. And those people like, like, but, you know, Trump just has like, you know, on a scale of one to 10, he's like a 20 on the charisma scale. Like it's charisma, like there's a negative and a positive version. A lot of people love it. It obviously turns off other people too, but it's like nobody denies that it's super powerful. And then you kind of see these other candidates who shall remain nameless because I'm too polite to say to say their names, but they effectively just try and do like a really cheap Donald Trump impersonation. And it doesn't work. And it actually really hurts them because like, you know, I don't know. It's like, you know, like me going out and like trying to pretend like I'm like a professional basketball player. Like, I just would look dumb doing it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, I think this is kind of the, the, the trouble that, um, kind of right wing politics in the U S has got now because it is post Trump. I don't necessarily, I personally don't think, and I know a lot of people in, in the space think that Trump coming back as Trump, uh, in, as the president is not going to happen. Um, but there is really no one equivalent. There's no one with that air of, of, of Caesar to him. Um, and Trump didn't really perform even when he was, I don't know exactly how, what, what he's learned. I mean, how do you see it, it playing out? Do you think Trump has a chance of coming back or, you know, we're, we just have to wait for someone worthy to, to pick yeah, up the I crown? Mean, it's a multivariable, uh, it, it's a multivariable uh, equation. You know, I don't know. Was that when, when you say you pick up the crown, are you talking about that, that Napoleon quote? Yeah, <laughs> you know, I saw the crown of France lying in a gutter, so I picked it up with a sword. Um, yeah, the uh, I mean, look, Trump is I think is fully capable of it, but it's uh, but it's also it's not fully in his hands. Like, there's a lot of other there's a lot of other variables here. Like, who are the Democrats going to run? What's the economy going to look like? Um, what do you know? Who runs against him, and how potent are they? Like, I know everybody's sort of silently and not so silently thinking like, oh, like a Trump DeSantis matchup would look like a certain thing. Maybe, I mean, it could be like one of these things where they just beat each other up. It could be something where, um, uh, you know, it, it could also be something where once um, DeSantis gets out there, you know, I don't know, maybe people don't like him as much as they do in Florida. I'm not predicting that by any means. I'm just saying, like, you don't really know until until the battle is joined. Um, so I don't know. That maybe isn't a satisfactory answer, but I think it is, I think it's more complicated um, as we try and predict what's going to happen over the next, like maybe 18 months or so. It's more complicated than I think than people give it credit for right now. Yeah. I mean, you know, it's this podcast level speculation. So we're just kind of <laughs> throwing <laughs> stuff out there. I, I ask you, because I know you're closer to the action, much closer in many ways. Um, I obviously also want to ask you about the book. Um, I got an advanced copy. I should admit, I just read it diagonally, but it is very, very interesting. And uh, um, it's kind of, it lays out a vision, which is, you know, people try to lay out different visions, but I feel like this was very, um, 
uh, coherent. It's very, you know, easy to read, very understandable, and also brings together a lot of the themes that you've covered on your podcast and I've tried to cover on this one as well. Um, and essentially what you, I mean, just to kind of wrap it up, it's, um, you, you're, you're looking for kind of maybe not a return or a resurrection or something, but you know, a, a, a blooming of, of civilizational vitality. That's kind of what, what you call it. What, what does that entail? Cause you know, people talk about vitalism a lot and this, and it's all about, you know, oiled up bodybuilders. And I'm sure you're not necessarily, uh, advocating that, but you know, vitality is yeah, a, is a broader totally thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, then that's <laughs> yeah. a part of the civilization of vitality yeah, no, part, because physical health is is part of it. And this is actually one of my frustrations with um, with people who you know, on our side, broadly speaking, complain a lot about all the things that go wrong. And you know, to be fair, um, I spend half of the book talking about all this stuff that has gone wrong. But that is. Um, that is uh, that is the descriptive element of the book, which I thought was a necessary predicate for a prescriptive element of the book, which is you know roughly sort of the back half of half of the book. And um, you, you, I'm trying to think where to go first here because you said something super interesting, which is like you know the, the return or the restoration. Um, I explicitly don't believe in that and don't want to do that. Um, because that is something that it just doesn't happen. It's backward looking. Like what I'm trying to be is forward looking about what is, and the term you use is sort of a blossoming or a blooming of, of a future American civilization roots in the past for sure. Um, and we want to learn from that, but the idea of like returning to, I don't know, you know, fill in the blanks. Are we going to return to like this sort of middle-class commercial republic of the 1790s or something? Are we going to return to like a, like a, a Puritan state of the 16, like 40s or like, I don't, you know, Tidewater, Virginia of the 1680s or seven, early 1700s? No, it's just a different, it's a different time period. And like pretending that those things are either realistic or even desirable, I think is, is foolish. Um, and so that's why uh, when I talk about, you know, civilization, vitality, there's a few concepts that I tried to use to concretize that because um, like vitality sounds good. Like I think everybody thinks, oh yeah, we should be vital or I should personally be vital or whatever. Um, but until you concretize it into things that are, you know, easily identifiable and measurable, then you actually have no idea what you're, what you're supposed to do or whether you're being successful or not. And so it just becomes sort of a motive. Um, and so, you know, my my view on that is that, you know, there are certain things that you can actually just describe. So one of the things that I, a concept that I use throughout the book is like, does a, does a civilization have a high capacity for collective action? Um, can you, can you do big things as a group? Um, could you put a man on the moon or, you know, look at, you know, could you, um, could you conquer the front, the Western frontier of this country? Again, the way that we did, you know, between the, you know, the 18th and the early 20th century, like those were really big projects that everybody participated in, um, in some way. And, you know, is that, what is that, what is our capacity for collective action? You know, that's, um, that's, I think a concept that's pretty easy to wrap your mind around. Um, but even that is a little bit, um, too ethereal, um, though, the more concrete than a, when like, you know, return R-E-T-V-R-N or whatever. Um, so then I say, like, you should just measure the other things like, um, you know, is the is the country prosperous? Like, I know, like, there's like this sort of cut on the right that says, well, you know, material prosperity is not everything. Uh, you know, obviously, like, you know, I'm just, like super Presbyterian. I agree with that. It's not everything, but it's something. 
Um, and it's also e easy to measure. And it, it is particularly important in our country because the explicit promise of this country um, is that like the, your kids do better than you and you did better than your parents. And so there's a, there's a, there are these embedded obligations and people's expectations that living standards will rise. And when they don't rise, when they either, when they flatline or they fall, then you have not only the sort of bad stuff that comes along with like flatlining or declining living standards, but you also have like broken expectations. And so that disappointment like will then sort of uh, play out in all kinds of, um, you know, antisocial, shall we say, uh, ways. It will leak into the culture, will leak into the politics. So, you know, we want, you know, we want to see living standards uh, broadly rising. You want to see people healthier, right? That's a, that's like a very big deal. When I, when I post about this on Twitter, I'll, I'll inevitably get people will um, start posting like, well, we need universal health care, whatever. Like, well, and one of the points, I mean, a, no, but also B, and more important than that, is that like that's really not the main issue um, in in American health problems. Like we have, I, I did a thread about this like a, 10 days ago or something, but like, you, you know, lifespan in the United States has been declining for, uh, for I don't know, 10 or 15 years. Um, at the same, so it's now down to like just over 75 years median life expectancy. Um, at the same time, and I was comparing to France, France's life expectancy has been increasing, right? So now it's like 80.3 or 80.5 years or something. So they've been diverging. Um, we spend um, about two and a half times more money in real dollars versus France on healthcare. Okay, so it's not the healthcare spending. And so the point I make is that like, we have got all these like super cool drugs or whatever for like inflammatory disease, like heart disease or diabetes, but we also have a whole lot more heart disease and diabetes than we had a hundred years ago. Like maybe we're like, we're intervening too late in the game. Like, and so I make the, you know, I make the obvious point about seed oils and fats and things like this, but people are just unhealthy because we live in an unhealthy system. Like industrial agriculture is poisoning people. Plastics are bad for people. Like this is a bunch of stuff like online, right? People are, are very, uh, you know, talk about a lot, but then when you, when you sort of dig into it, um, if anything, I would say, like you take your, you take all of your anonymous Twitter friends who post about like linoleic acid and you're like, you've actually understated the case against these things. And so when I talk about what a civilizational vitality means, it means not only uh, lifespans that are increasing, but people who are healthier later, um, later in life. There's this, um, there's a, there's this Harvard, um, uh, there's this guy at Harvard who's like an evolutionary anthropologist or something. He does, he does these studies of indigenous tribes that are, you know, for, fairly remote, like, you know, sub-Saharan Africa or the, or uh, Aboriginal Australia, these types of things, their lifespans are roughly equivalent to American lifespans. Um, these are people with very little contact, um, not none, obviously it's impossible to have none, but very little contact with kind of modernity and their lifespans are roughly, are, are roughly the same. But what's, um, What's super interesting about it is that they're healthier later in life. You know, they, maybe the lifespan is like 73, 74, 75. Um, but when they're in their 60s, uh, they're not as sick as Americans are. Um, and so, like, I, I always think, like, people are saying, like, isn't it so great that you can take a pill and get your blood pressure down? But then I look at, you know, I look at these tribes, I'm thinking, like, well, their blood pressure is not up to begin with. But it's, by the way, it's not just these aboriginal tribes. It's like the French, too. You know what I mean? Like, they, they don't have the incidence of heart disease that we have. 
So, you know, this is sort of a long way of saying, you know, like when I talk about civilizational vitality, like if you want to actually do something about it, I think you have to define what it looks like. Um, and so it's really, it's like, it's health. It is prosperity. It is the ability for the society to do something in a cohesive way to agree. You know, first of all, you have to agree on a big project that you want to do. If you want to put a man on the moon or, you know, um, subdue and, and civilize the frontier or whatever, you have to agree that those things are good to do. And then you have to be able to do it. You know, I, and at this point, I just think that, well, you know, on the, on the things that are measurable, um, like incomes, like incomes of, you know, real incomes have been pretty flat for decades. Um, you know, tech innovation has really stalled for, again, for decades um, outside. I mean, software is the obvious place where it has continued on. Uh, but elsewhere, it's been pretty slow. Um, you know, health outcomes are pretty bad. And I don't know if you think that we could all as a country agree that it would be like the, the, like the manifest destiny of the country to like go from New England to California again, like forget it. Like, we're just not there. But, and that's where the kind of the back half of the book comes in to say like, okay, here are some concrete things. They won't solve everything, but maybe they're the beginning of changing the trajectory. Yeah. I mean, it feels like in, in the U.S. and in the U.S. being the, the, the stage where politics for, for everyone else, uh, you know, happens and then trickles down in, in various, you know, forms and aberrations into countries like mine. Um, you know, you have this perfect storm of the, kind of civilizational dissolving powers of, of right liberals, you know, with the idea that, you know, the only thing is uh, you engage kind of consensually with the market and then whatever, you know, industrial slop they want to give you, if it tastes good in a Twinkie, you should, you should, you know, it's your freedom to, to go and, you know, destroy yourself single-handedly um, because, yeah, it tastes good. You know, you're, you're an independent, free, freedom-loving individual and uh, it's, it's your right. And then you kind of have the left who's there to pick up the pieces and say, you know, there's there's no one left behind from from all this fallout. And the fallout is not because, you know, people are making uh, bad choices or that the even the, the the framework of choice itself is is there's something faulty at its core, like the idea that um, you know, if if we you know, make all of these ways to kill yourself available uh, in the free market, uh, that's uh, there's no problem. But you know we need universal health care for for all the people, and you need to just pump money into it. So it's it's kind of this really kind of self feeding Ouroboros, where you know these two parts just just pump each other up, and they they fight these these shadow wars, and uh, you know kind of like a puppet thing. But uh, it's not actually uh, a conflict; it's just you know uh, one side propping up the other. So it, it's it's um make sure the things that will kill you are real are cheap and abundant. Right. Exactly, exactly. And this, you know, this is not as widespread. Like you said, in France, this mentality, you know, there are other cultural hangups that prevented from taking over because even France is slowly drifting that way. You know, Romania, I mean, I haven't seen, I've never seen people as fat as as they are now in Romania. We we had, you know, fat people, like we had one fat person in the class and, you know, they were the butt of the joke. And maybe they, they maybe they actually had some hormonal problems or just, you know, they came from a, a, a you know, of a more obese family or something. But now it's half the class, you know, there are people waddling through the streets. Like there's, you know, there's something, some some pathogen in the air, in the water, in the food or something like that. Um, maybe it's just a mental disease. Maybe it's just the the overabundance of, of stuff and the idea that, you know, you don't have to exert yourself to get your food and it just comes to you. And we've you know discovered fried meats and the fact that you can put panko crumbs on every sort of, 
bacon strip and then it's just maybe just the creativity of, of terrible food that has come through the airwaves. But it's here and it's getting, it's getting worse. Um, it's no, you know, it's no Walmart, uh, but it's, it's quite, it's quite interesting that it, it is really slowly trickling down. And, you know, I, I get accused of, well, why am I interested in the U.S.? Well, the problem is the U.S. is interested in me and it's, yeah. it's, it's all here. And I don't know, how, how do you see that? Cause I know you, you make reference to the wider world in your book as well. Um, I know this is a book f- about America, but how do you see kind of the, um, the, the impact of this? How do you see the wider world maybe? taking the lessons that you're laying out and is there any sort of um, hope for us? You know, what, what should we do here downstream from, from everything? Yeah. I mean, this is uh, there's a chapter actually, I think it's I think the chapter is called America in the world um, that, that addresses this exact issue. And you, I mean, you, you, you frame it correctly, which is like, why should I be interested in America? Well, because they're interested in you or we're interested in you or whatever. Um, you know, it is, um, like a global a global monoculture is just bad for everybody. Um, it's bad, and like the United States benefits in in some real ways from being the sort of the exporter of the monoculture. Um, or you know, I have a sort of, uh, I have a section in the book about um, about the dollar being the reserve currency. I think um, it, you know it it promotes malinvestment in the United States. We benefit from a, from it a lot. The only reason that we can uh, run these sort of exorbitant deficits indefinitely is because is because we control the world's reserve currency. And so effectively what we're doing, it's, it's, it, it's kind of like a 20th, 21st century version of mercantilism uh, where we uh, extract wealth from other parts of the world via the, the use of the dollar. Um, and these, and you, on the one hand, I, I can hear, you know, people, you know, sort of uh, Americans thinking like, awesome, like too bad for you. Um, the problem is it's bad for us too. Uh, and so it's like one of these things where in the short term you reap some benefits from it, but what it does is it, well, first of all, it promotes the government to just spend all this money because there's no check on their ability to do so, but it also promotes all kinds of malinvestment. And so one of the, one of the, uh, sort of sub themes in the book is, you know, about the tech stagnation, lack of innovation. Well, part of that is because there's malinvestment of human capital, uh, which is incentivized by King dollar. Um, and you know, the other, you know, the other countries, I think, I think it really varies, you know, I, and, and I, I make the point of sort of like civilization states, you know, it's not my point originally, but I think it, I think it roughly maps onto the way the world is. It's imperfect, but um, you sort of, have, you've got kind of Russia in the East, you know, uh, wanting to make a play as, as being a civilization state. You've got China and China's orbit. You've got India. Um, you potentially have, um, you potentially have Turkey. Um, you maybe it's not happening, but you maybe could have Brazil. Um, but it, the the weird thing to me has always been how willing Europe has been to just subordinate all of its interests to the United States and just be a vassal uh, uh, of the U.S. because it's not good for Europe either. Um, and Europe has like this long civilizational heritage, which for whatever reason has been willing to just like you know, give away in order to like make Uncle Sam happy and get more like cheap Chinese plastic stuff imported. Um, I think that that like necessarily has to change uh, for the rest of the world. It's kind of like, it, it's kind of like the, the that saying like, you know, what what's can't last won't last. You just don't really know when it's going to end. 
but you know, globalization has basically come to an end um, by force. You know, COVID kind of broke it. Um, it was already probably breaking anyway. It didn't. The problem is, it didn't really work. Like it, there was a there was a place where we had sort of extracted all of the juice from it, and then it became uh, destructive. So, like, it was sort of interesting when you were like the first in the first wave of like American manufacturers who found out you could get super cheap labor in China, like in the seventies or eighties or something. By the time China accedes to the WTO, whatever, 22, 23 years ago, now everybody knows it. And now it's just a race to the bottom. And you find out that it's not just that you can like firm A can outcompete firm B because they got cheaper labor in China. It's actually, you just denuded the whole country of its ability to manufacture things like antibiotics. Um, and the, the, like that globalization wave, I think, has just come to an end. And so now you see the, the beginnings of uh, what's sometimes called friend shoring or reshoring. And so you get manufacturing that's moving away from places where they, it only went because there was cheap labor. It was just a labor arbitrage. And so you see manufacturing slowly starting to come out of um, out of China, and maybe it doesn't go to the United States, but maybe it goes to Europe, or maybe it goes to Vietnam, which you know is friendlier to the U.S., or maybe it goes to Mexico or something. Um, but it's just starting to change those supply chains, and those supply chains didn't change, you know, overnight, and it'll take quite a while to 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 change them again. Um, but I think that that. I think that as the as the kind of wave of globalization ends and that trajectory changes, then I think that that probably also means that um, that some of these other countries or or sort of nascent civilization states that they start to reassert themselves culturally just by natural processes. It does. It's not even necessarily kind of like a a belligerent act. Um, nor nor should it be seen as that. But you know, China is allowed to be. China, as long as they leave everybody else alone and like Brazil or Turkey or whatever, they can do whatever they want to do. Um, and they should, and they, sh- and I think they find that they're a lot better off. Uh, you know, it goes for, you know, India or whatever. Um, and I think they'd find that there'd be a lot better, they'd be a lot better off as they develop their own cultures and, and, and think about the way they want to do things. And that the benefit that I'm most interested there is that that would force the United States to stick to our own knitting. And so that we would develop uh, we would develop our own resources, develop our own people in the United States and stop minding everybody else's business for them. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that, um, you know, Europe tends to subordinate itself to to the United States. I feel like people still very much underestimate just the, the, the tone setting, narrative setting, and kind of just a cultural power that's pumped out of the United States and not even in, in an explicit way, but just what comes in through through the airways, through your pores, you absorb the stuff because it's it's just out there. And every form of media, you know, in the in the lingua franca, you know, this lingua franca is not British English, it's American English. This is what they speak on TV and people just just absorb mm-hmm. it. Um and even, you know, people say, oh, you know, people hate America globally. You know what they hate? You know, they hate the stereotype of the Southern Hick. They hate the, you know, the, the Bible thumping idiot. That's kind of the, the American stereotype they hate. It's actually been implanted by other classes of Americans who they, you know, who they more, most identify with. You know, maybe they look up to people in the arts or some people, you know, the Harvard. Everyone wants to go to Harvard, but they hate Americans. They don't hate Americans. They hate, they, they know the play, this morality play that we always get through TV, you know, that there are, you know, uh, people who, they, the, the Americans haven't traveled. They don't know about fine cuisine, stuff like that. You know, that they're simple. They're rich but dumb. Uh, you know, there's there's all these stereotypes. And this is kind of 
in the in the water. And you see this even even on a political stage. I mean, even the, the politicians in the West. I know people involved in politics here who are you know um, European members of Parliament, and this is the software they're running. All of them, and this is kind of in the background. They don't know this is the software they're running, but this is what they what they believe. And this kind of American morality play um, plays out there. And the fact that you know Europe aligns itself to these values that exist out there in the ether um, doesn't surprise me that much. I mean, this is this is you know how, how it used to be, and that's that's kind of I think um, Nicolo Soldo makes this point that there's there's a lot of gas left in the American tank. Um, you know, called the Turbo America, that um, comparatively, the comparative advantage of America, because of this, you know, cultural behemoth that it is, and the fact that it's it's still flying under the radar because of this, you know, people don't realize that they're running American software with everything they do. Mm-hmm. Um, it still gives it like a lot of power. How that power will play out and, you know, where it's going to go is still a little bit unclear, but that America is going to be a big part, it's going to play a big part in the next century as well. I think is he's probably right about that. No, I think he is. I think he is right about that. Just to let you know, one of my major pet peeves about this type of about this type of thing is, um, and this kind of goes back to your thing about like, uh, well, as long as we can have the, the the cheapest foods and drinks that kill you, like we're winning. Um, I was in the Louvre like a, not that long before COVID, so like three years ago now, or three and a half years ago. And uh, if you, you know, if you go in the Louvre, you kind of you go down that escalator because the, the the lobby is you know one level underground. So you're coming down the escalator and going down the escalator to where you go and show your ticket and go in. And I'm I don't know I'm just like halfway down the escalator. I look up, and across the lobby is what a massive Starbucks. I'm like. Pardon my language, but like, what the fuck is a Starbucks doing in the Louvre? Because what, the French don't make good coffee? The French don't make actually way better coffee than Starbucks, which is horrible, acidic, and too hot. Um, Like, why is that there? Like, it's in like the preeminent monument to French culture. And the first thing you see is you're riding down the escalator is a Starbucks. Like, you know, I was, I was sort of like my second thought on that was like, this is like 30 years later, like 30 years ago, it would have been a McDonald's. Now it's a Starbucks. But the point is still the same. Is like, why, if you, if you are the people who run the Louvre, an institution of the French government, what made you think it was a good idea to put a Starbucks there? Like, like, like basically have you no pride? Like there's no French coffee company that would rent that space. Um, and, and I think, uh, you know, like you did this, I don't think it's just the money. Maybe I'm wrong, but there is, it's the software you talk about. It's like, aha, like that's the American thing. That's like the, I don't know, is, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I don't ever think about it this way, but it's like Starbucks cool or like, well, I don't know what it is, but like yeah. something made them make that decision to say, like, we've got great French coffee, like French make good coffee. No, to hell with that. Let's put a Starbucks like right in the middle of our cultural temple. Interestingly, I think, you know, like, for example, I always come up with this, this thing, like, in Romania, um, the the word for mascara is rimmel. And the word for, um, you know, tennis shoes or whatever, sneakers, is Adidas. And, you know, all these brands have become synonymous with the, the product category. And I feel like coffee, you know, Starbucks and coffee kind of have that effect. Like, you know, Starbucks is coffee, you know, so... Maybe it's, you know, it's just the coffee thing for any, because, you know, they have guests where people go there, less so the French, but most more so, you know, Japanese, Americans, people who come to, to see it. And they want to go to a place that screams coffee. 
and you know Starbucks is it. <laughs> they probably know. also made an offer they couldn't refuse. Of. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> yeah, I've got, I've got, um, I've got a friend who lives in Paris. He's telling me uh, this was a while ago, but I found this instructive and hopeful, um, which is that we're talking about the we're talking about food um, and the way agriculture is practiced in Europe in general, but in France specifically, and you know, kind of the impact this has on health and obesity and these sorts of things. And um, we're talking about the way chicken is like factory produced in the United States. Like it's, it's vile, it's unhealthy. As an American football coach um, once said, it's a nervous Asian bird and, and he didn't want his players eating it, which was like, you should look that up on the internet. It's very funny. It's like, it makes the rounds like once a year as a meme. Um, but he, but I, I brought this point up and like you go, like if you were from the United States, if you go to France or you go to other places in Europe, like um, meat tastes different. Than American beef because it's because of not just the it's not just because of the um, of the species but it's because of the way it's raised. And I said, well, you know, it must be great. Like you know, French are their favorite, uh, famous for like cocovin or whatever, and chicken's really good uh, versus like American factory chicken. He says, well, you know, it's funny. He says in France we actually do have the exact same type of chicken production as you have in the United States, like with a Tyson's chicken or whatever. He says, the difference is, is that it's illegal to sell it in France. It's produced exclusively to ex- for export to China. Whereas the, fr- whereas the chicken that is produced, um, according to like the, mostly the, the sort of what you think of as like the French agricultural laws, that's what they sell to their own people. And that's what those people eat. But like the sort of American version of like factory chicken, they, it's not legal to sell that. Um, in France, but you can export all you want to China. So I don't know. Was that like, is that, is that France subtly waging war on China? <laughs> maybe, maybe <laughs> waging economic war as well. You know, yeah, it's, nice, right. it's nice to sell to China. I mean, good, good, good for them. I just um, always thought that was so funny. I'm like, yeah, we'll make it, but hell no, we're not eating that shit. Yeah. I think that's, that was the case as well for like a lot of GMO stuff that, you know, yeah. was, was produced in some countries, but they would just, you know, sell it to the U S but, you know, if you're already planting GMO and on your on your fields, I don't. I feel like that defeats the purpose. You're kind of messing up already. But you know, yeah, that's no, there. That, no, you're 100 percent right. Like you can't like if the, if field A is is planted with GMOs, um, field B will be infected with GMOs just because of wind and you know rain and erosion and what whatever. Yeah, there's so much strange regulation now, and you know we've had we've had our own very like lax regulation in Romania, and then you have European regulation on top of that, and European agriculture regulation is a completely other beast because there's so many subsidies, and which countries get subsidies, which countries don't get subsidies. Now Romania gets subsidies as well, so that's kind of thrown all of our agriculture out of whack. And to be honest, in Romania, I think the European regulations made the food a little bit better because we had, we kind of had like very organic food because we had, you know, barely had, you know, manure type fertilizer for a very long time. Not very efficient. It wasn't like, you know, Norman Borlaug's here, you know, agricultural explosion. We didn't have that. And obviously you had the the farm shops open. So there'd be a little kind of like um, a little shop of wonders in every little village where you had Monsanto products, you know, Roundup, all sorts of Roundup Ready seeds, you know, all, all the stuff. And people loved it because, you know, it, it protected your crops. You know, the, the farmers would, would just love that stuff because it works. Um, and then they went a little bit overboard. So you'd have, uh, for example, if you went to the village and you, you know, people make wine, you know, from their own vineyards and stuff, it would be almost undrinkable because it would be packed with so many sulfites from the magic shop. And because, you know, they didn't have like, you know, high stainless steel 
you know, pressure systems to to keep the wine from oxidizing and stuff like that. Or just, you know, pour in a whole bag of sulfites, whatever, it's great. You know, but you can barely taste it. So, uh, and now you have European regulation and that kind of, you know, brought us up a little bit just because, you know, Europeans, you know, they, they, they fought their way through these standards a little bit uh, through a longer term and they've learned a little bit. Um, but yeah, the U.S. is a completely different beast there uh, because, yeah, you, you're free to choose Tyson's chicken, I guess. Well, that's not even just free to choose. It's like it's ubiquitous. Like you have to go out of your way if you want something else. Like I, it has been, I mean, one hopeful thing is that there ha- has been sort of, and this has happened um, organically, no pun intended, but there has been this sort of a little bit of like maybe a mini renaissance or maybe the very beginning of a little bit of a renaissance in like actual um, sustainable farming um, and re- like regenerative type farming. And that's been very good. So now y- you uh, you have to go out of your way to find it, but it's actually literally just some like five minutes on Google and like you could have it delivered to your door. Um, and you know, if you're, I would say, I don't know, like I live in Phoenix, which is not, you know, Arizona is not known as like a booming agricultural capital. Um, it's desert, but you know, we do have agricultural agriculture in Arizona and there's like a very good grass fed cattle association in Arizona now. Uh, like their practices, like even somebody who's a pain in the neck about this type of thing, like I am, you know, with full OCD, like you can look at what they do. It's quite good. And the beef they produce is quite good. And it's now easily available. Um, but it's still like a tiny percentage of what is being produced. And like, if you want to go out to eat or you go to a restaurant, like it's, that's still sort of nearly impossible to get. But I, my sense is, I, I don't know, maybe it's just a boutique um desire and therefore remain a like sort of a, a cottage industry or maybe um maybe there is a way in which this we sort of decide to get serious about like you know getting rid of industrial agriculture and getting back to back to some sort of a basis in um in regenerative uh ag which produces healthier food and therefore healthier outcomes you know you know what's interesting because uh, kind of um you know I'm gonna use this word again people make fun of me using this word but downstream from all the the Instagram psyops that we get is also a movement uh in kind of the same the same I mean this is very boutique in Romania kind of this regenerative um agriculture um you know grass-fed beef people haven't they, they've just started eating beef like five years ago and now it has to be grass-fed because you know they're influencers who <laughs> like people really didn't didn't used to eat beef here you you know, all the cows were milk, milk cows. It was all stringy and stuff. But now you got your Angus, you got your Charolais beef and, you know, you can, you can order it from a farm. And now I, I, I really like that. The fact that, you know, it's the fact that you know, there's a lot of terrible stuff coming down the pipes for, for us, you know, all the, essentially every mind virus that you have in the U.S. But also this, which is really interesting because I just, you know, I just put in an order at, at a chicken farm and it was very, like, very specific what they're fed and the fact that, you know, they're they're let outside to have an omnivorous diet. Um, because, you know, if you go to a store, a supermarket, and you want to buy the, the most healthiest chicken that they have, uh, the most expensive bit of chicken, it's the corn-fed one, which is orange. <laughs> it just says, you know, yeah. 100% corn-fed vegetarian chicken. And I'm like, it's the chicken was <laughs> it's confusing to me, but yeah. <laughs> anyway, and it's 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 like bright orange, and I'm like this. I I don't understand well, no, exactly no. what you're selling here. Yeah, so there's yeah, there's there's layers to it, but yeah, it's it's coming here as well, and I think that's I don't know hopeful to me in some ways. You know, but yeah, very very boutique at the moment. Yeah, 
But still, it's, I mean, this is like sort of the point of just to, every, it, right now in my life, Alex, everything comes back to the book. So there's, I'm going to make the book point again. Uh, but like, there, like, I think the trajectory is really important. Like, like this type of stuff didn't exist or barely existed, I don't know, five years ago or 10 years ago. Um, and now it exists and it's growing. And like, that's a, you know, that's a good thing. Now it's sort of, it's kind of like you were talking about uh, earlier. Uh, I can remember if it was while we were st- when we were recording or not, but you read had read um, Peter Thiel's book with Blake, uh, Zero to One. Like I feel like we in that type of thing we've got, we've gone from zero to one. Now we have to do the now we have to go one to n, right? So that now it's a matter of trying to scale those things and try and really change the uh, the incentive structure. Part of which is financial, but part of which part of which is also legal, right? Um, you know, there's, you've got all these like government incentives for doing, um, industrial agriculture. Those things were all put in place in the seventies intentionally by a Republican secretary of agriculture, by the way. Um, and now like it makes it really difficult to do the sort of agriculture we're talking about at scale because, um, because of the incentives that are in place from, from the government. Yeah. And, and realigning those incentives would, involve um, the presence of a value hierarchy that is completely different to the one that we have now or one that you have now, but, you know, indirectly we have as well. Um, so I mean, I think that's probably the, the key question for everyone, you know, on the right and, you know, how do our values trickle into the institutions? Will, you know, it have to be a completely separate set of institutions? Where would those reside? You know, wh- where is the legitimacy? Where is the power there? That's kind of... Um, that's, you know, that's the question, I guess, that everyone's asking. I mean, I, I know you addressed it a little bit in the book, but if you could go a bit into that. Yeah, I mean, like, I think that um, I, one of the proposals that I, that I put forward is, you know, I think that the uh, ability for people in this country to experiment with different solutions is really important. Um, and, and it is possible, by the way, that those solutions uh, that you know, what, what do I want to say? That different solutions will be acceptable or good in different parts of the country, right? But I mean, New York may think that it's good to do what, you know, a particular type of policy one way and Texas might think it's good to do it in a different way, another way. And it turns out that both of those things are perfectly fine and just let the New Yorkers do New York stuff and the Texans do Texas stuff. Um, but the, but the, the hard part of the lift there is creating an environment in which that sort of independence and experimentation um, is permitted. So I propose uh, in the book what is effectively like charter cities. Um, not my idea, but um, the, you know what I do take it a, a step further. And for people who are not into this, basically it, a charter city is just a de novo city, which first of all, I think the act of building new cities is always and everywhere a sign um, of some type of vitality in in a civilization like it's not easy to do it inspires people to do things that they otherwise couldn't do because you're you know you've got a you've got a blank slate and so now all kinds of things become possible there's all kinds of challenges that come along with it some that are seen many that are unforeseen and so it requires innovation uh but we want to, what we want to do is create a, a legal framework in which these cities can exist with at least one foot outside of the existing frameworks um, so that they just have a lot more ability to experiment um, with different sorts of outcomes. And I offer two um, examples uh, of 
what might be uh, one's a historical example and one is actually a present U.S. example of how that rubric, the legal rubric might work. And, you know, there's a there's a good framework for this. In the Holy Roman Empire, there were all these free cities. There were, I don't know, like 150 free cities or something. And basically, they existed within the empire. Um, they had to pay their taxes to the empire, though it was a, they, they had a different tax regime. Um, they got many of the sort of national defense type benefits and obligations of being a part of the empire. But other than that, they were very independent. Uh, and these often became cities that were very prosperous trading cities. Uh, whether regionally or or within the whole empire. So that sort of concept seems pretty interesting to me. Um, and I think what you it may or may not be a good idea. I, I, I haven't quite settled on this. It may or may not be a good idea to allow existing cities to to adopt that sort of format uh, or legal format. I tend to think it probably would be. Um, like what if New York or Chicago said, like we want to adopt this program? And so um, they that might lead to a renaissance in those places. But what I definitely think would be good is if people were permitted to build brand new cities. Um, The other analog here um, is Puerto Rico, actually. Like Puerto Rico is a territory of the United States and it exists as a part of the United States, but it has substantially more independence um, than the states do. And I know people who want Puerto Rico to be a state think that that's a bad thing for Puerto Rico. I actually think it's a very good thing for Puerto Rico. Like Puerto Rico has like the national defense commitment of the United States. It has access to all American markets. Um, People who live in in Puerto Rico are American citizens and with all of those sort of rights and protections that that comes along with. But for instance, um, the federal tax rate in in Puerto Rico is a fraction of what it is onshore. there's much less regulation um, in Puerto Rico than there is onshore. And so what people are just, I have just really been waking up to is that Puerto Rico actually is like, uh, is actually this haven uh, for people who want to do certain types of innovation while still remaining within the United States. Um, Like the same thing applies, by the way, I think in in some ways to Washington, D.C., though, to a lesser extent, like people think, oh, my gosh, like they they don't have a a representative in Congress like that. They are second class citizens. Actually, if the government of Washington, D.C. was smart, that D.C. is a slightly different example because it's the seat of the national government. But there is a world in which like D.C. could be like the Hong Kong of the United States or Puerto Rico could be the Hong Kong of the United States, where it's sort of this. You know, it exists in this gray area that actually is very beneficial for all parties. And so that, that's, that's one of my proposals is to try and like re- take, you know, really think through this and, intent- and make, a, you know, sort of a, a, an intentional political move towards allowing these type of, uh, these type of structures. Again, it's sort of like a get away from the homogenization. Like I think, I think that this type of, a lot of experimentation could actually wind up being quite good, um, both within that one um, discrete situation, you know, if there was a new city built or whatever, but also it winds up, it also winds up giving more purpose to the society um, as a, at large and, so, and hopefully sparks more dynamism. Yeah. I mean, I, I can see um, why the kind of the, the gray goo drifting tendency of the left would oppose this type of essentially your, it's, it's, it's kind of extreme freedom of assembly um, I'm, you know, people have 
entry and exit rights, but the the this you know the the charter city charter decides the parameters and values that are accepted or unex- not not acceptable in um in the charter city i guess you know and then right. you'd have kind of this strict brazilification of you know societies and i mean it sounds great to me but i could see why you know the left might might fight you on that one <laughs> Yeah, I I think that's right. I mean, but I think that there 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 is a certain subset of the left that maybe would find this attractive because remember, it cuts both ways. Like if you want to um, if you want to take an enclave and have a charter city that is like super woke, you know, go ahead and do it. Um, and that's sort of like my New York Texas example, or maybe it's like it should be a San Francisco or Northern California Texas um, contrast or whatever, but. Like if that's the way, if there could be a charter city for that type of thing, too, um, and so to the extent that uh, I, I, and maybe the conflict really is is um, is that on the political left, like they actually want to rule everything. Like yes, that was my you, next comment. Yeah. yeah, right, and that's a and this is this is where these sorts of things um, where 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 they really get some friction, if you will, is that like the left believes that they know what's good for everybody at all times in all places. Um, and it's like this totalizing force. Um, and that is, um, what do I want to say that like, that's where you potentially get a, a conflict here. My thought though, uh, on that is, is that, um, like something like a charter city. And I do say this explicitly in the book, something like a charter city or like a, a so-called free city, like in the Holy Roman empire, if you kind of, um, adopt the, something like the Puerto Rico system elsewhere, um, it is, it is not a way to like sort of win the total war it's just a way to change the trajectory. Like it's like, I'm explicit in the book. Like I don't think any of the things I propose there solve all the problems. I think that they maybe are like, are the beginning of solutions. Like I think we're pretty far from total solutions, uh, but we've got to do something that's really concrete. Uh, and so, you know, do, you know, this is like why federalism was, was and could again be important because uh, people have, and we see this in the States now where you have this sort of physical uh, separation where you Cal, you know, certain types of people from California left and went to Texas and uh, certain types of people from Texas left and went to New York. And, you know, I think it's important to have these institutions, you know, where you have real infrastructure that's built where people can physically exist. Um, like you have these spheres that are virtual on Twitter or, uh, or, or wherever people have to live someplace. Um, and people want to be around like-minded people. Um, it's good to have these sort of virtual spaces, but I just, like I was talking to somebody last week who lives in Chicago, um, it's lived there almost his entire life, has a successful business there. He's like, I'm leaving. Like, I just can't do it anymore. Like the people around me are just, it's just untenable. And, and that's why things are trying to build up infrastructure like this. So that people have a, have a, have like a physical space where they are around people that are hopefully like-minded or at least not at, you know, openly at odds with them is, is like super important. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm always a little bit suspicious of, of people who have a, a, you know, totalizing ready-made and, and instantly applicable solution to all of our problems. So I think it's, it's more than reasonable that, that that's not what you're selling and that, you know, um, 
it's not it's not managed decline, but we are in in, in a bit of a downward turn as a civilization, um, and things need to be managed. You know, the, the the next generations need to be managed. We need to make sure that people are uh, still having babies. We need to make sure that you know the. They, they can feed themselves and, you know, that they won't be persecuted for their beliefs, you know, um, that religion is still something that people can, can practice. So yeah, there's a, there's a lot in the book, people, and I, I really do recommend that you buy it. Um, and um, before I let you go, I want to ask you the question of the show, a tricky question of the show <laughs> um, that, you know, gets some people in hot water, I think, maybe, or maybe not. Um, <laughs> the uh, subversive thinker question, you have a, a recommendation for our audience. I do have a, I do have one. I think it's a pretty good answer too, if I do say so myself. And okay. here's one of the here's one of the challenges with your with your question um, is that like all the subversive thinkers are taken, right? <laughs> people like people like every. It's We've like been doing this are, show a while, <laughs> right? There are there are like no hot takes left. It's like you could say like Kaczynski or Nietzsche or like I don't like I don't want to give the Sunday school answer and say Jesus or you know or, or like I don't know whoever. Uh, BAP or, you know, all these things like, it's like too obvious, but I actually have what I think is, is a, tr- is, is an answer that's, is good because it's true. So my subversive thinker, uh, is John Hughes, the American writer and director who made like most of the classic 80 eighties mo- movies. Um, so he made like a bunch of the vacation movies. He made home alone. He made Ferris Bueller's day off 16 candles. Um, and he is like, I was thinking about this question, like he is a subversive thinker today because he's abnormally normal. Like he just told the story of the last time America really worked. Um, and like just literally just watching like Home Alone or Ferris Bueller's Day Off or Vacation, it is like that in 2023 America, like that is a subversive uh, worldview where you have a country that works, that is cohesive, is low crime. Um, there are families that um, live together, like each other. Um, they have kids. They're just like abnormally normal. And it's like, it is, they say, like the, the, uh, the past is a foreign country. Like you want to take, you if you want to go abroad, just watch a John Hughes movie. <laughs> That's um, uplifting and, and total black pill. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, to be honest, those those movies were the the world that we looked up to. I mean, we we got to see Home Alone in, in the '90s, and we thought, man, this is coming. Get ready, guys. <laughs> this is a you know flights, people you know people flying on on vacation. You know, you flying. You have so many children. It's so prosperous that you even forget one. It's just absurd. So, like, uh, it was it was an interesting era to to watch. Uh, so yeah, very very good recommendation. I like it. Um, last comment on that, Alex, is the Home Alone house. Um, so the family in Home Alone was supposed to basically be kind of middle class or middle class or whatever, but they were not in any way portrayed as being rich, right? Um, I think they had like six kids or something, five or six kids in the family. Uh, it was basically just suburban Chicago, like in the, I think that movie came out, what, 1990 or something. So, but basically it's an 80s movie. Um, that house sold... Um, and I happened to, I happened to see it online. I, I actually Googled for it, but it's sold. it sold. And there was news stories about that, that house, which was middle-class family, nice middle-class American family in Chicago sold for like five and a half million dollars before the COVID run up in housing prices. And I just, <laughs> I found that pretty striking, which is that like the picture of middle-class normalcy 
presented 30 years ago is actually super expensive. Yeah. I mean, even the idea that each each child has his own room and you have six. <laughs> How yeah. does that work? <laughs> yeah. A lot of space dividers. It's like a cubicle situation there. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, thank you so much, Chris. This was, this was lovely. It. I'm happy that uh, we got to do this. And I'm very grateful for the chance you gave me two years ago and have me on your podcast. And uh, I'm, I'm glad that kind of uh, slowly turned me onto the, the format. And now here we are and I'm, I get to interview you. Um, I want to point people towards America and the Art of the Possible, Restoring National Vitality in the Age of the K by Chris Buskirk. Um, please buy it. Uh, you will not be disappointed. Uh, and please do follow Chris uh, uh, online um, at, at Chris Buskirk. At the Chris Buskirk. At the Chris Buskirk, yeah. of course, and at American Greatness. Uh, and thank you again, Chris. Thanks a lot. This was fun. If you'd like to support my work and access more content, please consider subscribing through Substack, Patreon, or PayPal. See you next week.